Well, folks, let's jump back into our series on Esther. I'm in a little bit of a dilemma tonight. I've got the, a short lesson or a long lesson. I'm thinking about doing the long one and that we will just go ahead and close out Esther tonight. I know that we've lost some of our momentum. Uh, it's been three weeks now since we've been in Esther. And the last unit of the book is chapters 8, 9, and 10. So I was debating today, just cover chapter 8, or try to get them all, and maybe summarize a little bit. So I may try to get them all. You okay with that? That'll work? Say what? Can we? <laughs> Uh, find chapter 8 <laughs> would somebody escort her out of here tonight please <laughs> okay chapter 8 on that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood uh, before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are, in, who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. 
to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, all the officials of the provinces, and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful." The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And they also killed John and John and John and Jim and Jim and James and John and Bill and Harry and Henry, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men 
and Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month Adar. On the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Now folks, back in chapter 8, what we see going on there is how the consequences of evil and unbelief live on and have to be dealt with. The consequences of evil and unbelief. Now, remember by the time we get to chapter 8, who, who is dead? Haman. Haman is dead. But the consequences of the edict that he had the king issue lives on. You see, in only nine short months, the Persians have a blank check to rise up against the Jews and kill them. There's about 100 million people in the Persian Empire with 15 million of them being the Jews. And so the Jews, from a human standpoint of view, are definitely at a disadvantage in terms of numbers. Well, God had not put Esther in the position that he had put her in to now let everything be a lost cause. God carries out his purposes. God finishes what he starts. Aren't you glad about that? God finishes what he starts. You know, first of all, in chapter 8, we see the reward in verses 1 to 3. And I, again, I'm just kind of summarizing the events of chapter 8. I want to spend a little more time in, in chapter 9. But we see, first of all, the reward. In ancient times, when a traitor was discovered and then executed, the king would confiscate all of his property, and his property would become official land, official property and wealth. It would go into the government coffers. But I want you to notice what the king does instead. Xerxes gives everything over to Esther. Kind of makes you wonder why he did that, doesn't it? You know what I think is going on? He's dealing with a guilty conscience. Because now he's discovered what he did against Esther and her people. And so he's trying to, to rectify all of that. And to absolve himself of a little bit of the, of the guilt. Well, Esther receives all of Haman's belongings, and then on top of Haman's estate, Mordecai gets Haman's ring, the king's signet ring that had been given uh, to Haman. That's now given to Mordecai. 
Now the signet ring was so important, the king's signet ring, because it was the means by which orders could be issued and imprinted showing that they were authoritative. And so essentially to possess the king's signet ring meant to possess the king's authority. And so Mordecai is finally getting the reward that he has deserved all along. It says something about God's faithfulness to his people, right? We may not see reward immediately, but eventually God rewards his servants. God is faithful. And so here Esther is, she's queen, Mordecai is the prime minister, and so the Jews are now sitting in a pretty good position. They've gone from nothing in the land to now ruling in the land. This is a happy and a well-deserved day. Now folks, think about it. Here were two people that as the book of Esther began... Uh, I, I suppose the way that they practiced their faith could have been questioned a little bit. As we saw, they didn't seem to have quite the same level of character that Daniel did. And yet, God has used them. Now that says something about God's grace too, doesn't it? You read through the Bible and you see some of the people that God uses and it's a great encouragement to us, isn't it? It's a great encouragement. It just goes to show what God can do. And by the middle of the book, certainly Mordecai and Esther both have become more of the people. They've become more like Daniel in their commitment. Well, then we see the request in verses 3 to 6. Esther appealed to the king to issue another decree. Her request was that he would save her people. And so here we see in Esther a great concern for other people. She's not just concerned about saving her own skin. She's concerned about her people. And in that regard, she is also a great example to us. Here Esther is in the king's court. She's his wife. She perhaps could have been spared had all the Jews been killed. Had Haman's edict been carried out, she might could have been spared. I, I, I seriously doubt that anybody would have gone into the king's court and killed the king's wife. But she's not just concerned with her own safety. She wants to make sure all of her people are safe. So folks, as Christians who are safe in the king's court, we need to have compassion on others, don't we? And we need to get involved. 
Well, then in chapter 8, finally we see the resolution. The king gives them permission to write a new edict with his authority behind it because he knows that according to the customs and the laws of the Persians, he can't simply declare the old edict obsolete. And so what he does is he allows a new decree to be written in the language of each province and couriers are dispatched on fast horses to get word out as soon as possible. Now I want you to notice that as soon as everybody gets word of this new edict, we're told that there's great celebrations and rejoicing going on. Now let's make an application of this to us. We know that when it comes to us, there is an edict that can never be undone. It's an edict that the King of Kings has issued. And what is that edict? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And that edict has been in force since the fall of man. And God will not revoke that edict. But what he's done, he sent his son to bear the punishment for sin. And he's issued another edict. And that edict is, whosoever shall believe on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? That edict overrides the first edict. You can live under the first or you can live under the second. And what we need to do is quickly dispatch messengers to let everybody know in their language the promise of the second edict. Well, that gets us into chapter 9. Again, I'm going to spend a little more time in this chapter. The chapter opens up, and we're told it's the 12th month, the month of Adar, the 13th day of the same, and the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm and no No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. Now, don't you know that was a great day of anticipation? Have you ever anticipated the arrival of a a day in your life? You couldn't wait for that day to finally get there. I remember as a kid growing up at Christmas, I was always one to snoop. I couldn't wait on Christmas to get there. And I would always, I mean, I would snoop and I would snoop and I would snoop until I had finally found all of my gifts. Or how about on a different note, you remember waiting for your grades to show up in the mail. And your parents were going to see your grades. You remember that? 
Can you imagine the emotions that the Jews are experiencing? At the king's decree that Haman had arranged, there would have been great fear. But now at the second decree that Mordecai and Esther have arranged, there would have been great jubilation. But I'm sure either way there was a lot of anxiety going on. How would things play out? How would things turn out? It's been a long eight months. The Jews have been preparing to defend themselves. And now the day has arrived. It's showdown. Again, we see here that God finishes what he starts. And the first thing we see in chapter 9 is the reversal. What a surprise. The enemies of the Jews thought that they were going to get the upper hand. Instead, the Jews get the other hand. Now, we see several obvious indications as to why they were able to get the upper hand. First, causing this reversal was the fact that the Jews stuck together. There's an old saying that says, united we stand, divided we fall. We need to remember that as God's people. From the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, we see a basic truth being presented. When people work together, great things can be accomplished. Now the problem at the Tower of Babel was what? They were working together for the wrong things and so God came down and confused them and brought their work to nothing. But what if they would have been working for the glory of God? Great things could have been done in that case, right? Well, as a church body, we need to remember we've got a common enemy and a common cause and we need to work together the Jews worked together they they gathered together in their cities and they stood against their common enemy and they stood toe to toe together again what a great lesson they are to us I think a second reason for the reversal was that verse 2 tells us that the fear of the Jews had fallen upon the people Chapter 8 closed on this same note. It was evident to everybody that something special had taken place. The people have witnessed Haman's plot come unraveled and they now understand that a Jew has come to power as as queen in the king's court and her uncle is the prime minister. And so monumental changes have taken place. And so fear falls on them. It's the same type of wording that is used earlier in the Old Testament when the Hebrews leave Egypt on their way to the promised land. And fear fell on the surrounding peoples. We're even told that others wanted to get in on it. Chapter 8 says that many of the people actually became Jews. Again, folks, what a great testimony that is to us. If people see God at work among us, if unbelievers see God at work among us, what are they going to want to do? 
they're going to want to be a part of it, right? Sure they are. A third reason for the reversal, according to verses 3 and 4, is that the officials have now sided with the Jews. We're told that the reason is their fear of Mordecai. But a fourth reason for the great reversal is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. What did God promise to Abraham? That all the nations would be blessed through him and those who blessed him would be blessed and those who cursed him would be cursed. God's not done with the Jew yet. Paul talks about that in Romans 9-11. through There's coming a day that the natural olive branch is going to be grafted back into the tree. God is not done with his people yet. And evidence of that is any time, even today, that a Jew comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is grafted back in. And so any time that people want to bring harm to God's people or annihilate God's people, guess what? They better watch out because who will they find themselves fighting against? God. So we see the unseen hand of God at work here on a number of different levels. The unseen hand of God causing this great reversal. Now folks, as God's people, we can take comfort in the fact that even the decisions of kings cannot undo God's purposes and cannot harm God's people. God's purposes march on and God watches over His own. Amen? Well, secondly, in chapter 9, we see the request. We're told uh, how many were killed in the capital. Verse 6 says that 500 men were put to death. In addition to these 500, we also see that the 10 sons of Haman were, were killed. Somebody could have argued that since Haman had been put to death, since all their uh, dad's inheritance would have gone to the king, there was no need to kill the sons. But folks... Think again about that. Because ten sons who hated the Jews like their dad hated the Jews could have ended up doing a lot of damage to them over time, right? A little leaven can, can, can leaven the whole lump of dough, right? And so they knew they had to deal with all of Haman's household. When the king makes an assessment of what the Jews have been able to do, I want you to notice that he turns to Esther. Once again, he asks her to make any request. Now, what's he learned about Esther? He's learned that she's, his wife is a woman of character and a woman of faith, right? And he can trust her. And so he turns to her and he asks her what she wants done next. He's discovered that he can put a lot of confidence in her. That's the kind of woman Esther's become. 
Now somehow, we're not told how, but Esther has learned that their job is not yet complete. There are still enemies within the capital. To leave their enemies alive inside the capital would have been dangerous. It, it would have been no different than leaving Haman's ten sons alive. And so she requests that Haman's dead sons be hanged for the purposes of a, of a public display so that it would strike fear in the hearts of everybody. Now I want you to notice something they did not do. Three times in these verses it's pointed out that they did not lay hands on the plunder. Now this is in contrast to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, isn't it? Remember when he attacked the Amalekites, he was specifically told not to touch the plunder, but he did. He took the best of the plunder and God condemned his leadership for doing so. Here they were told they could take of the plunder and yet they didn't. They didn't want to become rich at the hands of their enemies. Now, at the end of the campaign, 810 were dead in Susa, the capital, and 75,000 were dead all over the king's empire. Now, when you think of the size of the Persian empire, folks, the death toll was pretty widely spread out. Xerxes doesn't seem to be worried about the death toll because remember he's just come back from war with, with the Greeks and he's lost a million men. So up next to a million men, 75,000 probably doesn't seem like all that many to lose. But I want you to see in Esther's request is her desire to complete the job. She wants to finish the assignment that she's been given. Now folks, think about that as Christians. Is it your desire, is it my desire to complete the assignment that God's given to us? Jesus was able to say in John 17, Father, the work that you gave me to do, I've done. Paul was able to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I've run my race. I've finished my course. Esther wants to complete her assignment. Every one of us in here for such a time as this, God has you just like Esther where you are. And God has given you a ministry to do. And God's given me. God's given the church a role to do today. Do we have that same burning desire and passion today as the saints on the pages of the Bible had to complete the work that God's given us to do? We need to be faithful to the very end. Then we see in chapter 9 the rejoicing that begins in, in verse 18. The rejoicing. 
Now, folks, without the book of Esther, we would not understand the festival of Purim that the Orthodox Jews still celebrate down to this current time. Now, Purim is the plural of the Babylonian word pur, which means lot. L-O-T, lot. In the sense of casting lots. You'll remember that Haman cast lots to see when to destroy the Jews. That's where the name Purim comes from. What we see in these verses here is the establishment of the feast of Purim. Purim was and still is a great time of rejoicing among the Orthodox Jewish people when the Jews celebrate how God watched over them and preserved them in a foreign land. Now I want you to listen to what happens at Purim each year. The Jews begin their celebration with a fast on the 13th day of the month commemorating the date on which Haman's evil decree was issued. They go to the synagogue and they hear the book of Esther read publicly and whenever the name Haman is read they cry out may he be accursed or may his name perish and the children have been given rattles and every time the name Haman comes up they, they swirl their rattles and it makes a growling noise and they go let his name be accursed the next day they go back to the synagogue again they read the book of Esther once more and then they engage in a time of prayer the story of Moses and the Amalekites in Exodus 17 is also read. And then they go home to a festive holiday meal with gifts and special foods. And they continue celebrating into the next day. And they send gifts and food to the poor and needy so that everybody can join in the celebration. It is a great time of celebration among the Jews from generation to generation. Now folks, why is that important? Why is it important that they, that they do that? Class, why is that important that they do that? Why? A memorial? God gets the glory. They never want to forget the great things that God has done for them, right? When you think of all of the feasts and the holidays in the Old Testament, that was the purpose. It's just like with Passover every year. When they would gather together and they would celebrate the Passover meal with the lamb and with everything else, the bitter herbs, and everything stood for something and it was to remind them of God's deliverance of them. They remember that at Passover. Well, at Purim every year, they remember that Haman's decree was undone. 
God caused a great reversal, and instead of their destruction, they got deliverance and they got victory. And they remember that. Is it important for the people of God today to remember the great acts of God? You better believe it. What's one thing the church is called on to do repeatedly that helps us to remember? The Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two ordinances of the church, right? Every time somebody is baptized, what are, what are we remembering? We're remembering the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our union with Him and our own death, burial, and resurrection and forgiveness of our sins. And then at the Lord's Supper, what are we remembering? We're remembering Christ's death, His shed blood on the cross for our sins. And His broken body. Folks, as the people of God, we need to remember the great acts of God and not forget. So these holidays we have on the church calendar are very important in that sense. The ordinances are very important in that sense. Christmas and Easter. Even though Christmas probably not the right time of the year for the birth of Christ. But we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That the transcendent God has become imminent. God with us. Again, all these holidays... These ordinances that we do in the church so that we might remember and not forget and that we would live lives of gratitude for the great deeds of God on our behalf. That's what Purim is every year for the Jew. Again, the point is God's people don't need to forget. Now, folks, we get into chapter 10, and it's interesting how the book of Esther closes. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might in the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people it's interesting how the book ends the book ends as a tale of two men a tale of two men what's the king do goes right back to doing what kings do they govern and they tax. Right? As far as Xerxes is concerned, it's as though he just goes on being a pagan king. His life ends and his deeds are recorded in the history books. The end. But as Esther closes, Mordecai is also highlighted once again. We see God's man 
who's been placed in a very powerful position and the legacy that he leaves is that he used his power for the glory of God and the benefit of his people. A lesson to us to live our lives to the glory of God and to the benefit of God's people. One man who lived for himself and his accomplishments and another man who lived for God's purposes. A tale of two men. And you know, those two men summarize how everybody on earth lives, right? Some are just living for their, their own accomplishments and they're biding their time. And others live for God's purposes. That's how every one of us in here tonight are living one of those two paths. Which is it for you? Well, folks, we see in the book of Esther that God certainly knows how to choose his heroes well, right? God certainly knows how to choose his heroes well. As I've told you before, had it not been for the book of Esther, we would not know how the Jews who stayed behind, who did not go back to rebuild the temple and the land, we would not know their outcome were it not for the book of Esther. And as I told you at the beginning of the study, sadly, most of the Jews did not go back to rebuild the land. Only about 50,000. Most did stay in, in Babylon, which became the Persian kingdom. They had become accustomed to their way of life. After 70 years of exile there, they had settled down, built homes, built businesses, and they stayed put. So again, without this book, we would not know their outcome. One of the reasons the book of Esther was slow to be accepted into the canon of Old Testament Scripture, too, was that people used to think the name of God doesn't, God doesn't appear anywhere in the book. Folks, God appears everywhere in the book. The unseen hand of God. God raising one up, putting another down. God getting His people in proper places so that His people can be protected and His purposes carried out. Mordecai and Esther lived. Their, their lives become a testimony of living faithfully. They were faithful servants. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25 about talents. 
and the, the master goes away on a long journey. He comes back, and when he comes back, that's evaluation day. And every one of us need to remember that faithfulness to God matters. Because one of these days, we will give an account. What are you doing with your life where God has placed you? Are you being faithful? Just like Esther went before the earthly king with some bold demands, we should never be shy about going before our heavenly king with bold request. When it comes to his people and his will being done, we should ask, right? Make our request known. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the journey through the book of Esther as much as I have. Because again, it's a testimony to the providential hand of God.